So just by curiosity's sake, uh, how many of you have either read or seen the movie The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? Part of the Chronicle. Yeah, lots of hands. Okay. Uh, for those that didn't, let me fill you in a little bit. Um, it's a story about a group of kids and they go to this house and they find this wardrobe. And when they get into the wardrobe, they go to the back of the wardrobe and all of a sudden it opens up into this magical land called Narnia. And when they're in Narnia, they find out the truth about themselves and about real life. In Narnia, they realize that they are children of God called to royalty to rule the Narnia area. But the crazy thing is they don't stay in Narnia. They leave Narnia and they come back into the human world. And they do that time and time again. And when they come back to the human world, Narnia is still with them in their heart. When they come back to the human world, Narnia still affects their motivations, it still affects their decisions, still affects their attitudes, still affects how they view life. Reading the Bible is like stepping into Narnia. For us, it takes us to another land, another place that tells us the truth about who we are, tells us the truth about who God is, tells us the truth about life in general. And it's intended for us to go back and engage our world as different people, people filled with the truth, people who have God's vision for reality, not our own. And as we've been going through this series on the book of Revelation, I don't know about you, but I feel like I snap into Narnia sometimes. There's just a crazy world that's going on, and it's going to continue this morning. So if you have a Bible, I ask you to open it up to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to finish that chapter and dive into the next. Last week, we stepped into that whole new world of the book of Revelation, and we saw there was a dragon who, who is Satan. There was a woman who is the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God. And today we continue this descriptive and creative journey. Last week, Pastor Lee talked about how there were three strikes. He said Satan tried to attack God. Strike one, he didn't win. Satan tried to attack God's people. Strike two, he didn't win. Satan tried to take the land that was ordained for God's people to live in. Strike three, he didn't win. And then at the end, it said that Satan was hurled to the earth. And that's where we pick up the story today. So if you look at Revelation chapter 12, I want to finish off this chapter with reading verses 13 to 17. It says, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman, again, remember the dragon is Satan, the woman is the church. The woman is, was given two wings of a great eagle so that she may fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half time. That means three and a half years. Out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman 
and went off to war against the rest of her offspring. Who are her offspring? Who are the offspring of the church? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. In these four verses, what we see right now is a current picture of the church today. The church is between the time where Jesus came and stepped into the world in the incarnation as a baby that we celebrate at Christmas time and the time where Jesus is going to return again as king. We're in the in-between. And this is a picture of the church in between. If you see it, it's so descriptively uh, and symbolically put together to show that we are at a place of battle. The church is at battle. I'm covering the rest of this chapter in all of 13, so I don't have time to dive into all that's going on in these four verses. But you cannot read this without seeing the fact that we are engaged in a war. There's a war going on between Satan and the church. And that's totally clear. We see that here. Satan was hurled to church and struck down. And now he is in this battle. It's interesting that when you look at this, uh, a few things to point out. We move from Satan being called dragon to verse 14. He's called the serpent. He was the serpent in the garden. And there was a verse that said, uh, there's a prophecy towards Jesus that he will not overtake you, but he will strike your heel. It tells us that though Satan will attack the church as well, it will not he will not destroy the church. The church will be attacked, but it won't be destroyed. God, in even using creation itself, I love when it says the earth swallowed up that huge torrent of water. Creation and God controlling creation will save the church, will protect the church. The devil is furious, making war, trying to destroy, but he can't. He may kill some, but he'll never, ever, ever, ever destroy God's purpose. God will never be thwarted. The worst thing that Satan can do to the church is send some of us to paradise early. The worst thing Satan can do to the church is to send some of us into eternal glory. It's the worst thing he can do. The church of God will always obey God's command and will be unstoppable because God is the one who is behind the church, protecting the church, who called the church, who redeemed the church, and is setting the church out into the world to declare his kingdom and his glory. And his mission will not be stopped even by the most evil creature that's ever lived, Satan himself. So the story continues on. Not only do we see a picture of the church today, but as we dive into verse 13, we see a description of what I call the first beast of deception. Look at the first sentence in verse 13. It says, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Satan stood on the shore of the sea. We all love hanging out by the sea, don't we? Talking February, March in central Wisconsin, get us to the beach, right? In the ancient world, people hated the sea. People hated being by the ocean. 
Because the sea was a place of chaos. The sea was a place of uncertainty. The sea was a place of unknown, what, unknowns that were going to take place. The sea was a place of death and destruction. Many people they knew of went to the sea and never came back. They didn't like the sea. This isn't a picture of Satan taking a vacation before he wages his next battle. This is a picture of Satan hanging out with chaos to plan his next move. He's still warring against the church, and now he enlists help. Look at the rest of verse 1 to verse 5. John says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horn, and on each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. That's key. We're going to get into that in a second. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. So now a beast comes into the story. And the beast is more impressive than the dragon himself. The dragon even gives the beast authority. There's a lot of interest around who is the beast because as you probably have picked up on, the beast is a symbolic of a person. A person's going to come forward and they're not going to look like a leopard and all. This is symbolic, apocalyptic language. But the beast is an actual person that's going to come onto the scene. There are actually two beasts. A lot of people don't realize that. We're going to meet the other one soon in verse 11. So we have a beast from the sea. Later we're going to have a beast from the earth. And then we have the dragon himself. Now I want you to notice something here. There's a copying that's going to go on through this whole chapter. A mimicking of what Satan sees in God. You have a dragon. You have a beast from the sea. You have a beast from the earth. You have a father. You have a son. You have a Holy Spirit. And this unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts mimic and copy what they see in the trinity of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's uncanny when you look into this. Are we going to, I'm going to show you some things where it looks like they're copying the exact person of the Godhead that they are trying to mimic. It's an unholy trinity. Now here's what I want you to get from that. Why is that happening? Is it because Satan is not very creative and so he has his piece of paper, God has his piece of paper, and he's looking, oh, he got three, I got three, I got a... No, that's not what's happening at all. Satan was an angel. He was a worship leader. He's extremely creative. He's cunning. What Satan is doing is he's trying to mirror God's ways to deceive as many people as he can. He's trying to mimic the truth... Because he knows that God, Father, God, Son, God, Holy Spirit are the true living God. He's trying to mirror the truth the closest he can so that he can deceive as many people on earth as he can deceive. He's trying to deceive even the elect. 
if such a thing was possible. And Satan does that. He takes God's truth and he distorts and he corrupts and he assaults God's people with lies to try to get us to believe it. And if you notice, very rarely, not, I'm not going to say never, but very rarely does he ever come with us with a bold-faced lie right in our face. It's usually truth, 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 lie. And he hooks us. He did that with Eve in the garden. Did God really say you were not supposed to eat of that tree? He's cunning. He looks at these things and he tries to bring out the truth so that he can use it to hook and bring a lie. And just as God is on a mission to save human beings eternally in heaven, Satan is on a mission to destroy the human race eternally as well. As I said, many try to interpret who this beast is. The truth is, we don't know. But the text does give us some things that I'd like to pull out. The beast is a symbol. This will be a person. Many, many people think the beast is going to be a political or world leader. And they go through all sorts of ways to find out who the beast is going to be. They have all their systems. I disagree. I don't think the beast is going to be a political ruler or a world leader. I line up with scholars that say the beast is going to be a religious ruler or a religious power. And we see this because this whole chapter is all about spiritual deception. It's all about false religion. And behind every political power on earth, there is always a spiritual reality at work. Every single human being is a sinner. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, we operate in a sinful nature that corrupts. We're all in need of a savior, no matter what level we ascend to in this world. The real and important issues of life are spiritual ones. Notice back in the text, this beast is mimicking Jesus Christ the Son. Verse 3 talks about how one of the heads, there was a fatal wound. Fatal means death, right? Fatal wound now healed. There's a mimic of a resurrection happening here. The beast of the sea is mimicking Jesus Christ the Son. The beast was apparently dead and then raised, copying Jesus. Now, trying to draw the world to himself, the beast is. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll bring the whole world unto me. The beast is trying but cannot succeed on the same level as Christ. But has some success. The world is filled with wonder and awe of the beast. The beast is worshipped. The dragon is worshipped because of the beast and what the beast does. In verse 4, it says, the people of the earth who are far from God are saying, who is like the beast? Psalm 113 says, who is like our Lord, our God? There's a mimicking happening here. Just as the followers of the beast are worshipping, those in heaven are worshipping the king of kings as well. We are part of that group in heaven. Look at where this continues on. Well, let me back up. In chapter 12 and 13, we see a time period that keeps popping up. 
Sometimes it comes up a time and times and half time, which means three and a half years. Sometimes it says 42 months. That's when the first piece is going. Back in chapter 12, it said 1,260 days. It's all the same amount of time. It's three and a half years. The devil's warring for three and a half years. The woman, the church is in the wilderness three and a half years. The beast is doing these things three and a half years. And what you need to know, it's not sequential. Like you have the devil's three and a half years, beast one, three and a half years, church in wilderness three. No, this is all happening in the same three and a half years. There's this period of time of extreme battle that's happening. And some say, is this part of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation? We're going to get to that later in the book, but it could be. So how is the devil and beast making war against the church in this season? As we see him mimic Christ, he's doing it by spreading a false religion. He's trying to bring about a false spirituality, a spiritual falsehood. The beast mimics Jesus So people worship a false god. Satan wants to get us off of worshiping Jesus Christ. And so we see here these people worship a god that looks like the true god, but is fake. Look at verse 6. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and to slander those who live in heaven. So there's this split that's taking place. Those who live in heaven, who the church, us, are considered that in this text. We are the people of heaven and the people of the earth. There's a, two, a, a clear distinction right now of God's people and the people who are of the beast. Look at verses 7 to 10. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. I'll get to that in a second. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. There's a battle going on. And during this time of battle, Satan is allowed to attack all people, language, tribe, and nation. And Satan is doing his best to attack on every angle. And in verse 7, where it says conquered, it almost looks like he wins. Conquered is a strong word. At times it looks like Satan wins, but don't be fooled. When we look at this in the context of the whole thing happening, we must remember the word of the Lord. And I'm going to show you in a second why that can't be true. God can be trusted. This church of Jesus Christ will not be conquered and destroyed by the enemy. He'll be attacked, and some will lose their lives. But the worst thing Satan can do to the church is to send some of us home to glory early. All the inhabitants of the earth, those who are not of God, will worship the beast. There's a parting of the ways. All of earth, all of heaven, people of the beast, people of God. And the next line tells us a rich, rich promise. It says, all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will not worship the beast. 
If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're truly dedicated to Christ and you're walking him out and God is working in your heart, you will not follow the beast. The elect, those written in the book of life, will not be conquered by the enemy and they will not follow the beast. The elect, who are the elect? I explained this a while back. Two views throughout church history. What the elect are, are the people who are Christians. The people who God knew would be Christians. One view says that before the foundation of the earth was here, God sovereignly chose those who are elect. Another view says God in his foreknowledge looked through. He knew who would accept him, who would come into uh, and accept the gospel and give their lives to Christ. So they are the elect. What you need to remember, that won't be ever solved in our lifetime. What you need to remember is that the elect are the people God has chosen and the people God knows, whose names are written in the book of the life. And the elect will not be deceived by Satan. The elect will be faithful to God. Satan will attack and destroy, but his power is limited by God, and the worst thing he can do is send us to paradise early. As a people, we must remember that. Now, I have to dive into something, and it's a little risky. I even asked Pastor Chris, do you think I should do this or not? But it gives such a huge promise. So if you're kind of sleepy right now, wake up. All right? I need you to track with me a little bit. If you look at the end of verse 10, verse 10 is a quote from Jeremiah 15, verse 2. And then there's a sentence right at the end of verse 10 that says this, at first it talks about the church experiencing captivity, some being killed by the sword. And it says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. You see that? Now, in the NIV, in the ESV, in the CSB, for some reason, the translators put in the word call. In the original language, that word call doesn't exist. The original language, what happens is it quotes Jeremiah 15 and says there'll be in captivity, there'll be sword, and then it says, here is the endurance of the faith of the saints. Now, why is that important? What's the big deal? First of all, let me say this shows how difficult it is to translate the receptor language of the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, into English. And some translations give you a little footnote that illustrates this. Others don't. But it's good for us to look at other translations than just one and to look at a study Bible that pulls this out. If you have the New Living Translation, you have it right, in my opinion. The New Living Translation doesn't put in the word call. It does it well. So why does this matter? It's important because when you put the word call in there, it sounds like an appeal. The church needs to be faithful in this hour. This is your call. Be faithful in this hour. But when the word call is out and it's just here is the endurance of the saint, it's a promise from God. You, church, will endure. We need to know that promise. When we're pulled into captivity, when we're pulled into situations of death, we will endure as the people of God, not because of some willpower in us to accept a call, but because of the Holy Spirit of God in active, protecting, guiding, empowering. God will be faithful to his people. And it's important for us to remember 
and know that. No matter how spooky and how weird all this stuff gets, God will be faithful to keep his church. You don't have to be afraid of what's coming. You just trust in the Lord. You don't have to be afraid when you hear how horrible the earth is becoming. You trust in the Lord. You don't have to be afraid when you hear these horror stories of where the culture is headed. It's all moving towards God's great plan and the person in control is the creator and redeemer, Jesus Christ himself, and he will not let his church slip. Don't be afraid, church. The endurance of the faith of the saints will be fueled by God. And those who are faithful will live forever. So the story goes on. There's another beast. You have the dragon, Satan who's powerful, the beast of the sea, apparently resurrected. And now the third person of the evil trinity comes, the beast of the earth, a false prophet. Look at verses 11 to 15. John says, then I saw a second beast. Coming out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth its inhabitants worship the first beast. Isn't it interesting how the Holy Spirit empowers us to worship Christ? Now, this second beast is empowering those of the earth to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound has been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit did that. Because of its sign, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth, false religion. It ordered them to set up an image and honor the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image be killed. Again, the mimicking and copying of Satan to try to pull forward the deception to deceive continues. The Holy Spirit's role is to exalt and glorify Jesus, to bring people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus. The Holy Spirit performs miracles, causes fire from heaven, gives spiritual life. And we see that apparently with this beast as well, but to do it to the opposite end. Not eternal life, eternal death. Again, the main weapon in this war is false religion, spiritual deception, taking the truth and changing it just a little bit. Miracles. Miracles can be powerful deceptions. You need to know that. We are being created in this culture of the wow factor. We love to see new things, and if it's that powerful, it must be true. No. Miracles can be deceptive. In the New Testament, true miracles always led to the truth of Jesus Christ. Miracles performed by the beasts of the earth do not do that. Their falsehood. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, verses 5 to 7. He said, many, many will come on that day and claim to be Messiah. They'll perform many miracles and do amazing things. Do not be deceived. You have to be careful what preachers you listen to today. 
You have to be careful whose app you download. Stay away from people who preach earthly health, wealth, and prosperity at the sake of the gospel. Beware preachers who say the church will never suffer because you don't see that anywhere in this book. Beware of preachers that tell you you can have your best life now because that's not the deal. Don't take the bait and start a seed of deception in your life now. Stay faithful to God's word. Listen to preachers who handle his word wisely and well. And if you don't know who that is, any pastor on staff at this church will help guide you in that. The beast also causes false images to talk. Verse 15, it says, it's wild. The second beast gave the power and breath the image of the first beast so the image could speak and cause. Now remember, when we look at Revelation, we always think of our future, right? This is written first century. And you know what happened in the ancient world? False prophets would make false gods and idols. And this one false prophet created an idol where it would move the mouth and talk to the people through it. John probably had that in mind when he was writing this. That's why when we look at interpreting Revelation, we have to not just think of ourselves, but where the whole thing was in context. And now the moment Crossview Church has been waiting for. Verses 16 to 18, where it talks about 666. <laughs> You've been waiting for this since we started this series. You've been faithful since January, and now we are here. Look at verse 16 to 17. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Amen. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. That number is 666. There's a mark of the beast. Again, copying. Ephesians 1 says there's a mark for Christians. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the copying and mimicking continues. What is this mark and who is the Antichrist? Well, let me first say, back up, and say, we as the people of God need to know the Bible. Because over the last 10 years, I hear things from the people of God that show we don't know the Bible very well. When... There's an app on the phone that's causing something that's cashless. People say, that could be the mark of the beast. When I hear of a biomedical chip being inserted into a human, people think, that's the mark of the beast. When I hear about a vaccine mandate or a vaccine or a mask mandate, and that could be the mark of the beast, that shows us we don't know our Bibles very well. The mark of the beast will not be hidden. It's not going to sneak up on somebody. It's not going to be disguised. It's not going to be like all of a sudden someone didn't realize they took the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast will be fully known. It will be very, very clear what the mark is. And people taking the mark of the beast will know exactly what they're doing because they're going to be making the most serious decision of their life. Taking the mark of the beast is the willful, intentional denial of Jesus Christ forever. It's the ultimate blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It's the unforgivable sin. When you take the mark of the beast, you are saying, I deny Jesus Christ the rest of my days and I give my allegiance to the beast. 
It's not going to be hidden. It's not going to be snuck up on. It's going to be crystal, crystal clear. And those who take the mark will know exactly what they're doing. And those who refuse the mark to follow Christ will know exactly what they're doing. There will never be a time in human history when it will be easier to know who are the Christians who are following Jesus and who are not. It will be crystal clear. And as we talked about the faithfulness for God to help his people endure through suffering, we can know that God will be faithful to help those who are his followers not to take the mark of the beast, even though it's going to be absolutely horrible. Christians who don't take the mark will experience things like starvation. They'll be ostracized. They won't, have, they won't be able to live in society because the implications of the mark is you need it to buy food, get paid, have a job. The implications are financial, political, and social. So when true Christians don't take the mark, they're going to be ostracized. They'll be pursued, tried to put to death. But God will be faithful. He will always be faithful. So who is this Antichrist? Look at verse 18 again. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beasts. Let me tell you, this isn't like let this person come. Like there's a person who's going to have extraordinary insight and understanding and they're going to come and tell us who the beast is. No. Proverbs tells us every single Christian has wisdom and understanding for their day. Every Christian knows this. What this is saying is when the time comes for the Antichrist to come forward, God isn't going to let his church be deceived. You will know who the Antichrist is if you're in these days. God will be faithful to declare it and say who it is. Now, a lot of people in this day try to figure it out. God's people have wasted endless hours and energy into trying to figure out who the beast is going to be. Some church scholars even have put together this idea called gematria. And what gematria is, is you take the Greek letters of the Greek alphabet, and you match it with numbers, and when you find a name that matches 666, you know that that's the Antichrist. They did that with Nero in a way. There's scholars that say this is, the case. This is silly and foolish. Don't get caught up in that. If someone starts talking to you about matching, just stop it. Don't listen to it. God will be faithful to tell you who the Antichrist is if you live during that time. It's more fun to pick a 20th or 21st century person and say that's the Antichrist than to see the faithfulness of God's word. I know. But we want to be faithful to God's word. So what does 666 mean then? I agree with the scholars who give this view, and this view is in many of the study Bibles that you have. When we see the number seven, we see it all through the Revelation, remember? In the book of Revelation, the number seven pops up everywhere. It's the number of completion, the number of perfection. It's God's number. We see it all through this time. We don't see gematria anywhere in the book of Revelation. That's why I know it's not right. But we see this number seven everywhere. This perfection, this completion number. The enemy is mimicking and copying, right? This whole chapter, he's mimicking the Trinity. He's mimicking God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now he's mimicking again. God's perfect number of completion is seven, and Satan will never ever get to completion. Satan will never ever get to perfection. The best he can do is number six. 
And if you look, there's three of them. The dragon, six. Beast of the sea, six. Beast of the earth, six. God is 777. And it, what John is doing is he's showing us no matter how powerful and crazy it gets with Satan and what he's planning and what he's doing, he will never, ever match God. He will never, ever, ever match God. He is no match. He will never attain what God can attain. Now that might not be as fun as saying it was Hitler or Mussolini or you name whoever, but it's a solid, faithful interpretation. So two things for this battle and we're done. First of all, fill your heart and mind with the truth of God's word. I was strong about that last week. Fill your heart and mind. Listen to me. Things are not always as they seem. We have to be discerning. Christ alone needs to be our allegiance. The Bible needs to be our ultimate authority. Psalm 1 says this, but whose delight, talking about the Christians, whose delight is the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. That word meditates is a Hebrew word name that's called agah. And in Isaiah, it's used as a picture of a wolf gnawing on a bone. We are to gnaw on the word of God. We are to chew it up. We are to return to it. We're to metabolize it. We're to take it in so we know the truth. This is how Jesus stays at the center of our lives and how we pick up on deceptions that come. Number two, we have to be gospel people. Let me tell you something. Satan does not care what false god you worship. Satan doesn't care what false god you worship. You can worship any false god. We are so tempted to worship false gods in the church because God has given us amazing blessings, things like family, things like a job, things like friends, things like church, things like a task to do ministry, but those are all second-place blessings. If you take any of those blessings and put them into first place, you just created a false god that you're worshiping. It's possible to worship your family above God. It's possible to worship your ministry above God. It's possible to worship your church or your friends or your job above God. And Satan doesn't care what you pick as long as you're deceived. Satan will draw worship to the beast, but in the meantime, the spirit of the Antichrist, the Bible says, is alive and well trying to deceive us to worship a false god. Take this moment. Examine your life. Have you valued anything in your life above Jesus Christ? Have you taken any of the blessings of God and accidentally let them slip into a first place and began to worship your job, your family, your material possessions, your money more so than Christ? If so, be gospel people and repent and say, God, I forgive me. I need you. I want you in first place. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Let's pray.